All right, we're gonna we're gonna get started. Uh, before we do, I'm just gonna mention Knessa back here, um, right there by Stacy. She's a, uh, one of our global partners. Went to church here when she was a WT. Now in South Asia, uh, serving. Um, so we we prayed for her last month. She was kind of our focus of prayer. So, anyway, just want to say she's visiting with us this morning. If you get a chance to speak with her afterwards, um, then then do that, please. So. Would somebody be willing to uh, open us up in prayer? Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this day that we can come, we can fellowship, we can get into your word. Father, most of all, we can give you the praise and glory. Mm -hmm. We are worthy of pray for the lesson today. We pray for Drew. We pray for all that teach and speak today. Pastor Steve, Father, just be glorified today. Be honored. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so last week we started talking about the, the normative principle, which is simply this idea of how do, when we're faced with a situation, how do we systematically think through um, how we're going to decide, what we're going to do, what is the ethical decision here um, in this case that I find myself. And so last week we talked kind of through the first three, which we might want to call like more the theological focus. So what glorified glorifies God in the situation, which we said is the most significant question you can ask. So how am I glorifying God through this decision? The second one uh, dealt with character. So what type of person am I becoming as I make this decision? Am I becoming someone that looks more like Christ or am I looking more like the world or more like the enemy or becoming the type of person I, I don't want to be according to scripture? And the third is, is there any clear scripture that tells me what I should do? Is there a, an easy command that would just say, yep, I shouldn't steal, so I'm not going to steal here. Um, that would be bad. That would, I'm not going to kill somebody um, because I'm angry with them. That would go against God's word. And then we talked a little bit about principles. Well, there's principles we can pull from Scripture, and sometimes those take a little more wisdom in how to apply. And so today we're going to talk through more pastoral. That's the language I'm going to use, pastoral things to consider, which have to do with circumstances. So how did the circumstances change how we make our decision, how do the consequences or the potential consequences, and then how do relationships. So that's where we're going. I'm hoping it, there's going to be um, a good amount of discussion this morning. So let me, let me start with this question. What is the place that circumstances have or should have in our decision making? How should circumstances basically play into how we make a decision? How much weight should they have, do you feel like? Mike says 12%. 12%. I think the right answer is going to be that it probably shouldn't matter that much. But I think it does. <laughs> <laughs> like, I'll... I'll So, I would not say it shouldn't matter at all, but maybe the way that, and I'll, I think this is one of the last statements, it shouldn't be the first lens through which you look through the situation, right? They have to be considered, your circumstances, but it shouldn't be the first thing that you uh, determine whether you should do this or not based upon circumstances. Yeah, I'm trying to say it shouldn't be, but, we pro but I would say it probably is like the thing that matters a lot in our decision making. Yeah. 
That's just to remind me. Yeah. Yeah, that, that gets that gets more relational, which is related to circumstance, but yeah. So let me ask this. So if I'm gonna simplify these. Last week we talked a little bit about like if giving ten thousand dollars to the church or cheating on a test. Uh, so I'm just gonna talk about tithing or stealing. So in the idea of a tithe, which is giving 10%, which we can talk about what the Bible says about that if you really want to, but uh, I don't think we need to. So somebody giving 10% of the church, how might their circumstances affect that decision to give a tithe? Whether they should do it or not, or... So how much money they make, should that come into a factor at all? What if by giving 10% they can't pay their bills? There's that parable, yeah, that she gave all she had. I had a pastor once that said that if, if you're convicted to give to something and like you need tithes, then, and you don't have it, it's probably because you misspent it. Hmm. It's, it's possible that somebody could misspend something. Are, are there times, particularly old, you older people, uh, that money's tighter than other times. All right, there, there are some times, yes, right? Uh, sometimes money, like you feel like, oh, I've got plenty, and there's other times you feel like I don't have enough. And so circumstances, that's one of the things you've got to think through. Do they change this, or do they change the percentage? You know, is there a time that you might could justify, I'm going to give 5% versus 10%? Or if you make, let's say you're, you're a billionaire, like, None of us are going to be billionaires, I don't think. But, you know, somebody has a lot of money, or maybe a millionaire. Is 10% sufficient? It's like, well, I, have, I make $2 million a year. Is $20,000 or $200,000, not $20,000, $200,000, is that what I should give? Is that really sacrificial? Or is that just kind of giving, you know, kind of off the side? Yeah, I mean, and this is where I don't want to chase this rabbit too far. I mean, in the New Testament, there's no uh, command to give a tithe. It talks about giving joyful, joyfully, sacrificially. Um, those are the main, main words that are used. We should give to the church. We should support ministry. But those are the, the language that's used. Old Testament talks about a tithe. Really, if you want to break it down, the tithe was 23% of what they made, not 10%. Um, and if you want to ask about that later, you can. But I'm just trying to make a point that sometimes circumstances might cause someone to think, well, I don't need to give 10% or I don't need to give to the church because I can't pay my bills. Right? What about stealing? So what if someone is, is starving? Does that give them the right to maybe steal food? Yes or no? I mean, it's a question, right? And it, us, us sitting back saying, like, no, um, right now, which, I mean, in one sense, it's like, yeah, that's, that's right, you should never steal. But if your kid's starving, like, how, how much is that temptation going to rise in within you? Like, if you live in a country where uh, you really can't provide for your needs, there's a, there's a famine, and there's the temptation to steal, right? There's circumstances that press, press upon us. Um, what about divorce? Like what, what about that situation? Is there a situation that the circumstances might change the decision uh, we make? Somebody saved after being in a religion that offered them a 
Yeah. Yeah, so this was actually um, a case that happens overseas is if someone who uh, is, is in Islam or, you know, we go to Provo uh, as well that comes out of the Mormon faith. If they um, come to faith in Christ and they've got multiple wives, what, what do you tell them to do? Do you tell them, hey, you need to divorce your other, your second, third, fourth wife? Do you tell them to stay married to all those wives? Um, so these are all like circumstances that we at least have to consider. When we were in Africa, there was a, a family that we knew. The parents claimed to be Christian, Catholic, but I don't think they were. Their son, who was about 18, um, was a believer. And one of the things that they had a, a family farm, and one of the things they did was grow a plant called marah or cot, which is kind of in between tobacco and marijuana-ish. Um, but people, like, it was illegal, technically. wasn't necessarily enforced, and people used it a lot. So it was a cash crop, if you will. And the way that they um, used marah, what they did that is so that they could actually send their kids to school. So what do, you, what do you do in a situation like that, where if you tell them, hey, you shouldn't be selling or you shouldn't be growing this anymore and selling it because it's illegal, and they tell you where my kids can't go to school anymore, like what, what, do, you, what do you do in that situation? What do you tell them how they handle that? So this is just, I'm, I'm just highlighting this to say this is complicated at times. Some, some cases are clear-cut, and sometimes we have to look at the circumstances and figure out what, what, is, what is the best thing to do here um, after we've looked through kind of the first, first three domains. Before I go any further, any, any questions or thoughts? I'm just trying to bail some tension right now is what I'm doing. Yeah. So here's the reality. We, we live in a fallen world, right? Would everybody agree that? Mm-hmm. So there are going to be times where there feels like there's this dilemma going on. There's, a, there's going to be tension in life where you're like, I don't know what the right thing to do here is. And that's why we're, we're talking through this. And at the end of the day, remember, the number one thing you need to ask, is this decision, is it glorifying to God? And then you begin to work through some of these other things we're going to work through. Because all, all things we face are really like concrete situations. I mean, some of these, I was just kind of throwing out random stuff, but this was a real situation in Africa where if they didn't grow this, this plant, their kids weren't going to go uh, get into school. Like, they had no means to pay for their kids' schooling if they didn't grow this. And so what do you tell that family, particularly uh, if they're not believers or if they're immature believers? How, how do you handle that? And so circumstances are a significant factor that we have to consider. Again, they're not the primary factor, but they are. Um, what, what I would say is circumstances change maybe how we, we handle it. So um, I'm just going to go to divorce. You know, if, if somebody is in an abusive relationship, right, we're, we're not just going to throw out the term or the, the statement, um, God, God hates divorce. You can't get divorced. You need to stay in this relationship and, and face abuse. Right? That would not be pastoral. That would not be 
glorifying to God to say, hey, just take your beating and get over it, right? So what, what do we do in that case when there's abuse? We, we try to help the person being abused um, remove themselves from that situation for safety. What's the, what's the ultimate goal that we would like to see? Well, what would be glorifying God in the end? Restoration. Restoration, right? But there has to be some steps to protect this person, to get them out. And in my opinion, some people may agree with me uh, or disagree with me, but um, a, a legal civil divorce in this case might probably or could uh, be permissible with the end goal of still having reconciliation in the end. But there may need to be some civil uh, steps taken in order to provide safety for that person, provide security for that person in that case, and not just say, well, God hates divorce, so we're just, you're just going to have to endure. Does that make sense? All right, questions? We can talk, we could talk about this, I think, the whole class, so um, I want to get to the other ones as well, but any questions or things you would like to say uh, related to circumstances? I know I just touched on it, but I think you'll see as we go, I just want to give us a 30,000 foot view today, and as we get into specific uh, topics, which reminded me, um, then, then I think you'll see how this plays out. Any thoughts, questions, comments on circumstances? Yeah, uh, I mean, there's just a lot to, to I mean, that could be uh, an option. And I wouldn't, I'm not saying in that situation, like you're saying, hey, tomorrow let's file for divorce. But when you're married, there's also so many legal connections, like with your finances, where they could still manipulate you through finances, go open uh, an account with your name on it. I mean, there's just, because you really are in the eyes of the government, so connected that just depends on the situation. That's why I'm just saying each circumstance may be a little bit different. And so I would, I would be slow to say, hey, let's go get divorced. But um, I would also say in that situation, we wouldn't want to just say, use this, this one command we see in Scripture um, and say, well, it's out. So somebody turned, I think Matthew 19. We'll just... Related to divorce, Matthew 19. So this is where, where the Pharisees come up to test Jesus, right, about divorce. This is one of the reasons I use this as an example. is because I feel like here's a good scriptural example of how Jesus explains the fallenness of humanity and dilemmas we find ourselves in and the hardness of heart, God giving some allowances for something. He didn't design it to be that way, but there's, um, there's an allowance. So starting in verse 3, it says, The Pharisees came to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read 
that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to the wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. They said to him, Why then did God, did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives from the beginning. It was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. So, in this case, they're asking him about divorce, and he points back to what God created it to be. They're, they're now one union, right? They're, they're one. So what God has brought together, let no man separate. So which would seem to say, well, that goes against what I was just talking about. Well, then it does give a, an allowance. Basically, he says, because of the hardness of your heart, he... Moses said men could divorce their wives with a certificate of divorce. Why was a certificate of divorce given? Does anybody know or have heard in the past? It was actually to protect the women. Okay, so in this society, uh, women were, if you were just thrown out on the street, um, a man kicked you out without some type of certificate of divorce, you had no protection. Basically, a lot of those women ended up in prostitution. And so it was given in order to protect women from the abuse of men at the end of the day. And here we see that the only way that they really could do that is if there was uh, adultery, like if she cheated on him. I mean, we see this, and this is going longer down the path than I want to, but we see that in, in Joseph thinking Mary had cheated on him before they even were married, there was this, Joseph was going to divorce her quietly, right? So in that case of the, the wife committing adultery, then the man could then divorce. So in this case of you know, being abused, one, we have to ask the question, is God under the civil law or is the civil law under God? So if the civil law declares somebody to be divorced, are they really divorced in God's eyes? Or is this a way to protect the woman in a civil matter, but yet they're still technically married in God's eyes? So question, food for thought, um, don't necessarily want to debate it right now. But those are just things to consider. And you can see how, I mean, you can start, this is super tangled, and this is why circumstances can't be the driving factor, but they do have to be considered. I don't think we talked about, like, if there's kids involved, too, and that abuse extends to them, and yeah, that, taking away and having custody, and, like, <clears throat> is divorce permissible in that situation for the safety of the kids? Yeah. And that's uh, what I'm planning to do because that is a, a thing to consider. And, and so this is how they kind of interlink. But under relational, that would be things to consider in a, in a divorce. What if there's kids? Is there, there abuse to the kids? How is it going to affect the kids? And so uh, these are all things we have to consider as we're facing ethical questions. All right, next, next thing, and we can come back to some of the circumstance stuff if we need to. But the next thing to consider is, is consequences. So... How much should we consider consequences of a situation in our decision-making? Jordan, what do you think? <laughs> we had a talk this week. I know she's basically, if she was unregenerate, she'd be a utilitarian. So not a totalitarian, a utilitarian. So what that is, if you look down at the definition, um, 
basically it's a it's a form of theory that basically considers the consequences as the primary way that you assess an ethical situation so you've probably heard it this uh, heard this the greatest good for the greatest number of people or the good of many outweighs the good of a few and so that's this mentality of well what is, whatever's best for the best number of people that's what you should do in, in an ethical situation uh, like this um, Another kind of form of this is the ends justify the means. And this is, if you don't know this, this is a way that you, by nature, living in American culture, that you view decision making. So, uh, for example, whenever uh, the U.S. in World War II decided to drop bombs on Japan, what was their line of thinking? Does anybody know? Save lives. Kill thousands to save billions. Yeah, so kill thousands to save millions. That was kind of their statement or basically how they, they thought about it. All right, so their decision-making was if we drop bombs on this country, then it's going to save thousands of military lives as we send them onto the shore of Japan, knowing how Japan had fought before in in the war but really what what this line of thinking is the ends saving lives justifies dropping bombs on complete citizens uh, you, we can make arguments whether these civilians were a part of it or not how they supported the country but but we on the other hand we, we would if we reverse that and a country dropped bombs on New York or Dallas on civilians in, in, in a war, we'd say, well, why didn't you fight soldiers? We would feel the tension of them killing innocent babies and mothers and young people that were not involved in the war. But this is the, the line of thinking that, that came along with that is, well, we're going to um, save lives here. That's the end. So however, whatever way we need to get that done, that's justifies doing this what's what's one of the problems with that so you see what's the problem with some of this line of thinking what's the problem with that line of thinking it hasn't yet. It ha yeah one of them is it hasn't happened yet so you're basically reading the future right how, how do you know that it was going to save lives or how do you know that that's going to work yeah or how do you know it's that's going to work Yep. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you have. So one of the problems, and we'll, we'll go through some of this here in just a minute, is that you basically have to have omniscience in order to live this way. You know, um, and we'll talk about that in a second. But you've got to know all these different things if you're going to live this way. The other is, who gets to define what's good? Because I guarantee you, the, the end goal of killing a bunch of civilians on Jap the Japanese side, that's not what's considered good, um, right? So, uh, I forgot my sheet that I was going to bring down here. I don't think I stapled it. I didn't. So, uh, uh, imagine this situation to go to more kind of a personal standpoint. Say, 
So you get a phone call one day and a, a family member has had a, a car accident. They're in the hospital. You go to the hospital. When you get there, uh, the doctor tells you, hey, they're, they're brain dead. Like, they're not going to regain consciousness. They can breathe on their own. Their organs work. They, they can live without any medical technology keeping them alive. But because of the brain injury they have, the chances of them coming back into consciousness to ever be out of a vegetative state is slim to none. So that's the situation. <laughs> then another doctor comes in and, and tells you, hey, actually you had two other family members in the car with them, and one of them needs a heart, and one of them needs a liver, and this person that is in this comatose state matches. Right? He, he's a match to be able to provide the heart and the whatever, the liver, the kidney, whatever they need. So what, what do you do in that situation? You're the medical directive. They're, they're the closest of kin. So what, what, do you, what do you do? You go get their advanced directive that they did ahead of time because they're a responsible person. Yeah. Because they but, listened to Daniel when he gave that class. Oh, yeah, good point. Are they an organ donor? Yeah. They've already but they're not dead yet. Yeah. So technically, you can't be an organ donor unless... Yeah, you can't... They're, they're not dead. They're not being kept... So presuming they don't have an advanced directive. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> but but you're... But you're, in, you're, you're... Yeah, you're having to make a decision because you're next to kin. Are they a believer? Yeah. Are they a believer? That, I mean, that might be something that comes into your mind. Yeah. Have you heard of miracles, Jordan? <laughs> so, so I know what Jordan's gonna do. But here's here's the deal: if the if even in, even in your mind there came the temptation of like, well, two are gonna be saved, right? But two could be saved, and there's this one that's never going to be able to have consciousness again. So it might be better to go ahead and let that one die so that two may can live. The ends justify the means, and this utilitarian uh, mentality is ingrained into you. I'm not saying it's always wrong. I'm just saying that's ingrained into your mind if that's, that thought even came into, uh, into your thinking. Yeah, there, there's a, that's what I'm saying. You're, you're, basically, you're, you're basically trying to read the future. So turn to the, turn to the back real quick. This is going to help us think through how at the end of the day, this is, this is not a good way of thinking through things. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes it's required. Huh? That's why I'm giving you all these these things. Yeah. So, the reason this at the end of the day is not helpful is because it takes so much. You're you're projecting onto the future um, potential consequences when you don't know the future. You don't know how God might step into that situation. Was God sovereign when two people? got hurt to the extent where they needed a heart transplant and a liver transplant? Was he sovereign when this person didn't die who could have provided that? Now, I'm not saying you just throw everything to God's sovereignty, but you can't just say, well, I'm going to kill this person because that's what you're doing at that point in order to provide over here. It has to do with control at the end of the day. What if somebody's actually made these decisions and you're saying these hard things? Well, I, I, if I'm offending you, I'm sorry. Uh, I'm not casting judgment on you. So, um, looking at the seven things that we must do in this situation is 
if you're going to have this line of thinking, even this is a nation making decisions or as an individual, you have to identify all the possible courses of action. What are the, all the different things I could do in this situation? So even going back to the idea of, you know, divorce, right? You've got to think all the possible courses and actions that could be take place. For each course of action, you've got to identify every person affected. So just going back to divorce, you've got to figure out, you know, how the kids are going to be affected. What is their long-term scars they're going to carry from the divorce? How might it affect their future marriages? How might it affect the appearance of the parents, the parents of the people getting divorced? Um, what might that change for their lives? What about the friends or the church they're part of and how it affects the relationships and the pastor and, and how he cares for those people going through those situations. So there's a lot of people you've got to identify how that affects them, right? Then you have to identify each pain and pleasure that's going to come to each person that's affected by that situation, assign each pain and pleasure like some type of numerical value, and then basically do a net loss like, well, the kids are going to be affected this bad. They're going to become drug addicts. That's pretty, pretty negative, right? I'm not saying that's true. Uh, I come from a family of, that were divorced when uh, I was two years old. I have some things that I had to work through because of that. Um, but by God's grace, he's done things different. And so where does that come into the, the equation? God's work, God's grace in situations, how he might restore marriage or not restore marriage. But then at the end, you've got to sum all this up and then figure out, okay, well, which one is the greatest good for the greatest number of people, right? That, that's impossible. And it, particularly going back to a thing like Japan, like there's no way to measure the effects that had on a country or people or the people that dropped the bombs. I mean, that's, you know, the people that actually did that, you know, the rest of their life, they had to think back on, you know, the people that were affected in that country because of their, their button push, right? So there's so many consequences that we don't consider because we ultimately want to justify some type of action uh, that we want to do. Or we just don't know what to do. And so this is a more simple way in some ways to try to figure it out. Well, this seems like a good consequence. This seems like a bad consequence. So I'm going with the good. Does that make any, any sense? Yes, a lot of it has to do with control. It really, it really does. When you think about like a hundred years ago, a lot of these scenarios would not even be happening. It's because of our technology right. yep. that we need, now have a possibility of playing God. And uh, it's, these are tough situations, but, but I, I still think that we're at the end of the day. We got to make God. Yeah, technology has has changed. Um, a lot of that because even I saw the other day and I'm not saying this this is a well it's, in some ways it's an ethical situation but right now it doesn't off the top of my head seem to have any like real consequences as far as breaking any ethical situations but I saw where in, in Austin or somewhere down in Texas they were trying to seed the clouds right um, in order to get more rain which I mean again even 50 years ago that wouldn't have been a possibility it would have been what do, what do we do right now because we don't have any rain. We, we hit our knees and, and pray. 
Right? We, we pray that God would give us rain, and we trust that He's going to get, give it to us in His timing. And is technology good? Well, it, technology always has good consequences and bad consequences, but one of the things that it always does is makes us feel like we're in more control than we actually are. Um, so, are consequences insignificant, though? I would say no. So, in, Matthew, in Luke 14, okay, you can look there if you want, but basically, as Jesus is talking about following him, he says this, For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish all who see it. And they begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate, whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. So, in this case, Jesus is giving an example. He's talking about following him, which I think is significant, really, behind the heart of this text. But he's, he's giving two life examples of considering the end consequences. One, you're going to build something. Do I actually have the resources to finish what I'm going to build? Like That's thinking of the consequences, right? The end. I'm going to war. Can I actually win this war? And so consequences are something we should consider, but we also need to re remember that we're projecting possibilities. And so they're not something that we can, you know, put all our cards on the table, or that's the primary way, again, of, that we think. Because sometimes life throws us a curveball. Sometimes a man may have um, plenty of money to build a new house, and then inflation happens, or he loses his job. He loses his job, no, no more income at that point, and the house that he had projected he would be able to build, no longer he is able to build. And so this is to recognize this is probable outcomes. And so with that, we need to not put too much emphasis on consequences, but we need to think through the potential consequences. And so again, for, for all these situations, like even, even stealing, you know, if, you, if somebody was hungry and they were going to steal, they need to think through the consequences. If they get caught, then they're going to go to jail and their kid's really never going to eat. Or what about that family they steal from? Maybe they were depending on that to feed their family, and now that other family doesn't have food to eat. And so there's just so many consequences that can happen, and we have to think through as we're making decisions, those potential ones. And yet, at the end of the day, we have to do what's right because it's the right thing to do and trust the consequences uh, with God. I think I've mentioned this before. Um, one of the, the ways this end justifies the means, you see this uh, in churches uh, a lot, is any program or anything that a church does, that all of a sudden a few more people show up, that automatically it almost starts to be thrown out in churches as this is the way you should do it. A program gets put out, a book gets put out. Well, this is the way that you should disciple or this is what you should do in your youth program to get more kids uh, into your building, which may be some really great ideas, um, but it may not be. It may just be that they did a really good job of, of throwing a party and a bunch of people showed up because they wanted free food and it was a good party and they never talked about Jesus but they got a lot of people in the door um, we just we just can't say because there was a desired end 
that however we got there is okay. How we got there is just as significant as what happens in, at the end because we can't control the end at the end of the day. Um, can we go back to the medical thing? <laughs> <laughs> sure. So I'm just thinking through like we're trying to apply human logic to these situations. Mm-hmm. And so who's to say that God is limited in his sovereignty by the decisions that we make or don't make? Because one, that can wreck somebody mentally, mm-hmm. guilt-wise, for the rest of their life. But what if it was all to bring somebody to Christ later on? I mean, like, where is the having peace and being spirit-led and ethical decisions? That's why number one is so important. Does this decision glorify God? So if you make the decision here, does this glorify God, right? Am I, am I seeking to glorify Him in this decision? Is this the type of person I'm, you know... Seeking to be, am I as close as I can tell, aligning myself with Scripture? If you're doing those things, you're going to be able to lay your, your head down at night. So this is not to heap guilt on anybody that's made poor decisions. This is the way that, I'm telling you, my ethics class in seminary was a class that messed my, my thinking up for a long time. So I'm just repaying the favor to you guys. <laughs> um, but in the end, it, it helped me to think through situations better and not feel the tension in life of feeling like I've got to make the perfect decision or all is lost. It's I do what God said and then I, you know, some of the consequences and some of the circumstances, then I, I can't control all those things. So yes, there, there is this trust in God's grace, God's work being able to step into a situation because God could bring that person that's comatose that the doctor has said will never wake up. He may wake up. God, God can do that. I mean, there are people that I know that basically had terminal illnesses, said, you're going to die. And then God did some type of miracle in them and healed them. So the doctors are not always right. That, that shows that we trust science um, maybe a little more too much. Like science is good. It's a good tool. It's common grace. But science isn't God. And so we, we have to have the, the right perspective uh, in life. I don't know if that addressed what you were Yeah. That's where the utilitarian mindset comes in. Yeah. It's like, well, like, at least it's for the good of the, the majority. Yeah. yeah. Because there's nothing. But that doesn't even make sense without a good being defined. Yeah. Right. That's, that's, exactly. that's where it doesn't make any sense from a non believer standpoint because who defines yeah. what's good? Especially from the idea of we all come from little cells. You know, we were from slime at the beginning. Like, that doesn't make any sense in a forward concept because it should be better for me. What's mm-hmm. best for me is yeah. the no, idea. Nobody lives from an evolutionary biological no. ethics framework. Like no no human beings actually do that, even though they would profess that they might. But mm-hmm. nobody acts in their own interest all the time. Mm-hmm. So th- this kind of leads into relational a little bit, but say there's a an eight year old, this is you know real life situation uh, in, in our country right now, an eight year old who says he's a boy, says he's a girl, so he claims to be a transgender. What if, what if a parent says what's good is to start giving this kid hormones and helping them start transitioning to a girl? That's, that's good for them. And then the other parent says, no, what's good for them is 
to help them to see that there's some type of confusion in their mind. They're actually a boy, but for whatever reason, they think they're a girl. So, again, how do you define what's good um, in this situation? Like, who, who gets to determine that? In that case, it was a judge. It's true. In that case, it's going to be the, 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 yeah, the, civil, the civil government that would determine what's the most caring. Or again, to go, go back to this divorce case, how do you, as we're talking about relational stuff, so basically how do relationships, uh, how are they affected by our decisions? Uh, in this case, what is, what is the most caring thing to do? Because that's kind of related to this. Because that's really what relational, the relational domain is asking is, what is the most caring thing to do as I consider how my decisions are going to affect the people in my life? So in this, like, what's the most caring thing to do in, in a case where somebody has been abused? Or just let's go to adultery. If there's been adultery in the, in the marriage, what's the most loving thing to do then? What about the kids? What's the most loving thing to do for the kids in that situation um, to the people that are actually involved in the marriage? Like Those are, those are heavy things that we, we have to... Um, have to consider in these um, as we're making decisions. So how much should relationships and relational responses affect our decisions? We had a, uh, I don't remember what class that was in. Was it in the last class we talked about showing up to a, a gay marriage? Yes. Okay. So Say you have a friend who invites you to a wedding and they're homosexual and they're having, um, they're having a wedding and they invite you to be a part of it. How is your relationship with that person going to affect how you respond? Whether that's I'm going to go because I'm hoping in the, in the long run that I'm going to be able to share the gospel with them or keep that relationship open to sharing the gospel? Are they far enough away where you're really not going to hurt their feelings? Um, can you explain to them in, in some form or fashion why you can't attend their wedding even though you care for them? But how does the relational response affect our decision making? Any thoughts or questions on that? I keep writing that back up there. 
But this, this really helps if everything goes through this framework. If you can, in good conscience, say, this glorifies God for me to go to this wedding, um, the, despite the circumstances and, and um, consequences, this, this would actually glorify God to get a divorce, which I think you could say there, there are some cases that it might. I say they're pretty limited, and we can talk about why, but mainly it's those extreme instances. Um, with the hope that one day there's going to be reconciliation. I, I have some good friends that they, they walk through a divorce. Um, well, I have two sets of friends. One, one's close and one's not. The other one's a little more extreme. One of, the, one of the ones that we're acquaintances with, both of them actually committed adultery. And over about a seven-year period, they both came to faith, but both unbelievers when all this happened. And the man, his name's Bo, just pursued his ex-wife for seven years just believing I'm supposed to be married to you I made a commitment to you we're divorced now but I'm going to win you back and over seven years like he eventually did that and they're married again have had more kids um, not that that's going to be the case of every situation but just to say God can work in those situations but the question is what glorifies God and uh, trying to answer that question first and foremost since you gave an example Sure. So years ago, before most of you were even thought of, I had a young woman who worked in my office with me, and um, her husband had been a youth pastor in an area church, and for some reason, I don't even know the circumstances, he lost his job, and it just devastated him, and he kind of turned into a bum. By the way, there was like a one-year-old baby in the mix, too. They were somewhat newlyweds, but been married long enough to have a child and all that. Anyway, he lost his job, and it just turned him into an introvert. Mm. He stayed home watching Oprah, eating chocolates, and wouldn't get out of his pajamas, didn't shower, wouldn't shave. And Now, there was no infidelity. There was no abuse other than, you know, living with a deadbeat. Mm-hmm. And everyone in her life was telling her, divorce the bomb. Mm-hmm. The guy's a jerk. He's not going to recover. Get out of that relationship. Christian people. Our mm-hmm. church. Mm-hmm. She came to me in my office, closed the door, and said, can I ask you a question? So she related this story to me about her husband. And I said, Cynthia, all I can tell you is, you made a sovereign vow before God, before your husband, your family, your church, and you promised to love this guy forever. Mm-hmm. It's wrong. Divorce is wrong. I don't mm-hmm. care what everybody else is telling you. Mm-hmm. I don't have a solution for your situation, but I know that it's wrong. My recommendation for you is you pray for Stanley. Mm-hmm. You hang in there. You know, you ask God for deliverance of this situation and see what happens. Yeah. Fast forward 15 years later, I got a letter from Cynthia. Mm-hmm. And she said, I want to thank you for being the only person. Mm-hmm. Who stood in the gap and told me? Just hang in there. Yeah. He at that time was BSM director at Iowa State University. Had a tremendous ministry that had two other children mm-hmm. and a great marriage. Yeah. Now that story's not about me. Mm-hmm. It's just about speaking truth into people's lives. Yeah. So don't hear me when we're talking about divorce. Um, in any way, saying that 
no-fault divorce or divorce should be in, in any form or fashion the first um, first option. It should be an option way down the road, in my opinion. And, and I see something, and we'll talk about this when we get to divorce and remarriage, something different between civil and um, actually divorce in God's eyes. So I think those are, are two separate things. Um, and God at one point divorces Israel as he sends them out of the land. What was his end goal? Bring them back, right? So in any case where there's a civil divorce, I would say the point of a civil divorce is to bring upon consequences that God might use in their life in order to bring restoration um, back. I will add consequences can come into play. As I said, in that situation I described, there was no abuse. Right. And he wasn't on drugs. He wasn't in adultery, yeah. So if you add those things into the mix, it does complicate. Yeah, that's why, that's why circumstances matter, yeah. right? Because if there's no adultery or no, no abuse, uh, then really the grounds for divorce aren't there. Um, but in those cases, how do you even manage that? Because every time there's an adultery, it doesn't mean, well, then I should get a divorce. It just means that God, if you understand Matthew 19 a certain way, there at least is permissibility within the, the relationship. But that doesn't mean that even should be the first option if there is adultery. So divorce in no case should be the first first option. But it, in some cases, it might be permissible. All right, a few more things. Uh, we're getting close to the end here. So as we think about relationships, it is something we should consider. So 1 Corinthians 9, 9 tells us this. And I'm not going to read all this, but this is basically where um, Jesus or Jesus Paul tells us to uh, basically lay down our freedoms for the good of our brothers. Like if some brother would be caused to stumble in their faith because of something you do, then you set aside your freedom that you have in Christ to do this in order to love your brother. So relationships and how it affects relationships do matter. But, uh, again, if, if we're trying to justify going against God's word or doing something that doesn't glorify him because we don't want to displease man, that's when we're getting in dangerous territory. And that can go, go with things such as being positive like evangelism. We might not share the gospel or talk about Jesus because we don't want to offend that person. And so in that moment where our desire is to basically lean toward lean in toward this relationship and be more concerned with this what this person thinks then we're thinking about what honors God here what pleases God by sharing the gospel speaking up about an unhealthy relationship or divorce might be a way you're more concerned about this person and how they perceive you than you are about being true to God's word and so relationships and how they're affected are something we should consider, but again, they're not the primary thing we think through. Turn to the last page. Um, not the back back page, but the last page I wrote. So making moral decisions. And this is just something to think through as you're coming up with decisions, but as we, we talk through uh, in the, the classes ahead on s- specific topics, uh, these will be things we consider along with what we've been talking about the last two times. So, situation arise, arises, right? Okay, what, what do I do? Well, before the situation arises, you be, began to just begin to build a biblical worldview, which is what we're trying to do right now. So, how am I going to respond when this happens? Well, I've thought through it so that 
in the moment, I don't feel as much tension. I already know how I'm going to respond. Now, I might uh, address some of the circumstances or consequences that might be unique, but overall, I know how I'm going to respond in this situation. So you've done discipleship and built good habits on the front end. But once you've identified the issue, you prayerfully submit yourself, saying, God, I want to do number one. I want to glorify you in whatever decision I'm about to make. I want you to get glory and not myself. That's what I want to happen in this situation. Then basically you consider those first kind of theological. What does worshiping God look like in this context? You know, will this choice help me to become more like Christ? Is this choice according, in accordance with or disobedience to God's word? And then you start thinking through the things we've talked about today. Well, how do, how do the circumstances, how do they affect my choice? You know, what potential consequences might come from this choice, short term or long term? How will people that are involved basically be impacted? Then after you've done all that, you've thought through that, if, if you've had time to do that, consider alternative choices and then also get wisdom from other people because sometimes you want to justify your actions, you have blind spots. And so asking other people in your life, hey, there's this situation that I'm facing. What do you think I should do? And make them make a biblical argument. Don't just let them tell you, well, you deserve to be happy so go get divorced. Like, Talk to wise people that know God's word that can tell you, hey, I think according to what God says here, this is something you should consider. So take advice not from people that are going to tell you what you want to hear, but people that know God's word and that are going to point you um, to glorifying him. And at the end of the day, you've got to make a decision uh, when, when it's all said and done. All right. We went through that fast. I probably could have made that two classes, but I want to go ahead and get into looking at specific topics. So what I gave you earlier, if you hadn't already filled it out, um, if you did, that's fine. But um, if you would check, it would be helpful if everybody did this, check like your top three things that you would like us to talk about. So on there, if you, you look at them, they're, they're pretty broad topics. Um, but we're going to try to personalize them as much as, it, as much as we can. So like with war, we may, we're going to talk about what just war is. But then we're also going to talk about, well, is it ethical for a Christian to join the military um, with the command not to murder? So that's a question that some people fall differently on when it comes to divorce and remarriage. You know, if somebody's divorced, is there ever a permissible time for them to be remarried? Um, with wealth and poverty, we'll, we'll just talk about how we how we personally use wealth and what what our responsibility is to take care of those who are poor. Does it matter if they're in our church or not part of our church? You know, birth control should should Christians take the pill or not? Should they use any type of birth control? So we'll we'll try to start talking through these things again to get your mind thinking through ethical situations. So mark three for me, and then as people are doing that, are there any thoughts, questions, concerns? If you feel tension after this class, that's normal. Okay, you should, after this, this particular one. Because again, we live in a sinful world that causes a lot of tension in our lives. No, you don't have to sign it. I just need general... Anything you want to add, Daniel? I would just add that um, when we were talking about defining what the good, 
we kind of discussed it in light of a secular person, but to know that that's also, that also applies to us, right? I mean, the very first thing that Adam and Eve do is they eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, mm-hmm. right? They wanted to define good on their own terms. And when Eve saw the fruit, she saw that it was good, so she decided it was good and ate. So, um, you know, in Deuteronomy, whenever they're giving the rules for the king of Israel that they're going to appoint over themselves, assuming that that king is going to make decisions for the entire country, you know, at the end, whenever it says, basically, he should be a Bible scholar. He has to write out the law and study on it day and night so that he will internalize that law, meditate on it, and be able to make decisions based on what's in Scripture. Mm-hmm. So I think that's important to keep in mind as you go through those six categories of making decisions is that all of those, you need to be able to be humble enough to say, I don't get to decide what's good and what's right. I need to make those decisions based on something that's already been put in my mind from Scripture and prayer. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, we have to know the Word in order to think through things properly. Yeah, and even in that situation, like part of the reason she ate is she thought it was going to make her wise. So she was looking past the situation in order to anticipate a consequence that she thought was going to be good for her. Um, you know, Saul at one point goes against God's word and sacrifices rather than waits on Samuel. Why? Because he thinks, well, this army's, I'm, I'm, about, I'm facing an army. I'm not going to win unless a sacrifice is made to God. And so I'm going to sacrifice. I'm going to disobey what God has already told me to do. And I'm going to honor him by diso- disobeying him. And then they find themselves, the, the kingdom being ripped from Saul. And so God's word is, is the foundation um, I just think sometimes this was kind of the warning last week is we just need to be careful that we don't take a command from God in a particular case and say that applies um, in all times through all situations, mainly like principles. And so we'll talk more about what that means. Um, but there, there are some cases where God told things to Israel, again, that he didn't tell us. And so... That's why being a good student of God's Word to know when is this a command that's for all time, uh, for all people is true, and when it's a principle or a command to a particular person at a particular time for a particular reason. So that's why you have to do Bible study in community and not just assume you know all that. Or even deeper, if it was showing how God worked something for good even though it started out in sin or in some terrible you know because you can look at this and say oh god worked this sin for his good so yeah yeah so you just have to use discernment and i mean that's why you read the bible your entire life it's meditation literature yeah so all right hopefully uh that was helpful in some form or fashion i think it will become more helpful as we continue to go along so let me pray for us